economic and political um, transition. They imply a real shift, and we've seen with the effort-sharing agreement in Brussels that this is not an easy debate by any means. Um, the rapid digitalization of industry and new actors on the markets um, also imply big regulatory changes and uh, shifts to keep up with um, the changing times, the different winners and losers on that market, and of course the decentralization of a lot of these trends so that um, consumers may increasingly have a role in what's going on, and we're seeing that local politics and cities can have um, as much impact from the bottom up as from top-down regulations, which is something that uh, we sometimes lose sight of in Brussels. So we have a number of speakers here <laughs> to talk about these things. Um, we have, uh, unfortunately, um, Ms. Donnelly couldn't join us today, so we have Mark uh, Van Stippel to uh, fill in. He's the deputy head of unit for um, new energy technologies, innovation, and clean coal. Um, from the Commission. Um, from the industry perspective, we have uh, Jean-Jacques Marchais from Schneider Electric and um, Michael Grubb uh, from London um, to give us a bit of a context and academic progress. So I'll give the floor now to Simone um, so he can start us off with a bit of context on the situation. So first of all, thank you very much to all of you for coming. Welcome to Google. As you know, uh, we have been uh, working uh, quite a lot over the last years on various issues uh, related to energy and uh, climate. And today, I am quite happy to, to, to have the opportunity to kick off uh, this discussion by presenting you uh, the preliminary results of an ongoing research that uh, I am making with my colleague uh, Georg Zachmann on the uh, implications, the policy challenges of decarbonization in, uh, in Europe. So if the slides will come, I can, uh, I might start, voila. So decarbonization, as we know, in Europe we have a binding, we have adopted binding 2030 targets on energy and climate these uh, targets uh, encompassing the 2030 <coughs> climate and energy framework were then adopted into the, the, the Paris Agreement, and uh, that's <coughs> actually how Europe presented itself uh, in, uh, in Paris. However, we should not forget that the 2030 targets are an intermediate step in a longer uh, term decarbonization pathway, which uh, actually goes down to 2050, and uh, accordingly to the 2011 low carbon roadmap, the Commission at the time uh, took the vision of decarbonizing by 80 95 percent by 2050 if compared to 1990. So, this is the prospects that we should have in mind uh, while we are also discussing the 2030 framework because, of course, technologies that are chosen today, considering the long time of uh, 
the, the, the energy infrastructure will last for decades to come. So it's important to take not only the 2030 framework, but also the 2050 scenario into consideration while, discussion, while discussing the, the future of decarbonization in Europe. With our uh, analysis, we look <coughs> at the various decarbonization options for Europe in the key greenhouse gas <coughs> emitting sectors, like electricity, heating and cooling, and industry, to outline which are, from our perspective, the key policies challenges ahead. Let's start with electricity. As you know, the most sensible decarbonization pathway for the power sector is certainly energy efficiency, so consuming simply less uh, with a stronger demand-side uh, management policies. Renewables are a key <coughs> part of the decarbonization of the power sector also, and that's why over the last uh, years uh, Europe concentrated <coughs> on these particular segment of the decarbonization. Carbon capture and storage are very controversial technologies, but uh, that continues to be on the table as far as the decarbonization on, of gas and coal are concerned. And for these, I would like to mention that if uh, we look at the uh, 2050 projection just released uh, a month ago by the European Commission, according to the reference scenario, you see that uh, gas particularly and coal also will continue to play a role in uh, the, the, the European energy mix uh, under the current policies. So the only way to continue to have these fuels into the mix uh, by meeting the decarbonization pathway is the one of investing in CCS. Uh, there are many challenges to deploy these uh, decarbonization options. As you know, more renewables uh, brings uh, certainly a huge amount of problem related to the flexibility of the system due to the intermittent nature of variable renewables, and these will certainly need to be tackled, particularly with, uh, uh, with more uh, action on electricity storage, which today is still not mature as an, a technology, but also interconnections of markets will be needed to help the creation of a flexible power market in Europe. The second uh, area within energy contributing to uh, greenhouse gas emissions is certainly heating and cooling. And here we are getting into something which is more interesting in the sense that while, as we saw, electricity decarbonization is something that we have already discussed for years and years in, in Europe, heating and cooling has always represented somehow the Cinderella of the EU energy policy. The European Commission never tackled in the past the heating and cooling sector, and only recently, as you might know, the European Commission came up with uh, an important study, an impact assessment on the decarbonization of the heating and cooling sector, which represents really a first step of the Commission in this particular field. Eating and cooling is very important because it represents 50% of the final energy consumption in the EU. So we are really talking about something crucial for the energy system of Europe and for the decarbonization of the European economy. Just to provide you an idea, eating and cooling also represents about 85% of the consumption of a normal person. <coughs> In, uh, in the residential sector. So it's also a key part of the energy bill, by the way, of uh, citizens. Uh, the reason why heating and cooling was never tackled at the EU level is the fact that heating and cooling is extremely fragmented. It's a local market. As you know, <laughs> transport, heat, or cool is not possible. So you simply need to produce the heat and the cool where it <coughs> is consumed. 
So uh, the decarbonization options for this sector are several. You have, first of all, the behavioral approach. So to enhance the behavior of the occupants of buildings to teach them how to consume less. You have uh, the possibility to improve the building's envelope, which is uh, something on which we have uh, certainly started to do efforts in, uh, in Europe, even if energy efficiency, as you know, is much more difficult uh, to, to, to be tackled as an issue rather than deploying renewables with subsidies. Energy efficiency of heating and cooling supply equipments is also a key part of it. And all of these also <laughs> are, uh, let's say, options available for the industry. In the case of a industry, it should be particularly mentioned that the <coughs> issue of waste heat is crucially important. Because industries, particularly heavy industries, produce consistent uh, waste heat, which might well be utilized uh, if uh, include in a proper scheme of synergies into, for example, district heating in cities. So the idea of utilizing waste heat from industrial clusters to warm up uh, nervy buildings in, uh, in nervy cities. And all these uh, uh, options require an increasing uh, interconnection between the heating and cooling <coughs> sector and the electricity sector, but particularly a more and more uh, power in the governance of the energy and climate area at the local level. Because heating and cooling is a key example on how certain decarbonization options can only occur <coughs> at local level. So local communities, municipalities, regions do really have a room, a considerable <coughs> room for maneuver to contribute substantially to decarbonization. Transport. Transport is another sector which is uh, in Europe mainly, as you see here, uh, almost more than 40% based in terms of emissions on vehicles, normal passenger vehicles, cars. So uh, here, you also have an opportunity to decarbonize strongly in cities, because <coughs> cities are where uh, transportation of uh, this kind is concentrated. Cities are where uh, you know, uh, people are concentrated, and then you can also adopt an alternative to new technologies such as electric vehicles, hydrogen, or sustainable, only sustainable biofuels, certain uh, kind of decarbonization options such as the modality shift. So you can improve the public transportation in a way enhanced by ICT, of course, to allow a more utilization, a greater utilization of these options by the citizens. These can be you know, in, uh, designed in tandem with uh, car sharing <coughs> solutions, also enabled by, by ICT, and uh, also Local choices, such as, as investing in pedestrian zones rather than bike sharing system, can contribute to a change in the model shift of the way transportation works in cities. Industry. Industry is uh, uh, a sector on which, of course, uh, mineral and metal, uh, as you see in this graph, really accounts uh, for almost half of the emissions. Here, the decarbonization options, again, go to, uh, to, to energy efficiency first, to, capture, to carbon capture and storage, something that uh, the industry will be already today probably available 
in terms of the capturing side of the story, but as far as uh, the uh, transportation and the storage of the CO2 is concerned, well, on these there is a clear lack of business case today, and uh, uh, the infrastructure particularly, the issue of the infrastructure for CCS should, <coughs> of course, be tackled by the public policies, exactly in the same way like uh, uh, ordinary waste in, in, uh, in our societies are managed, in the same way CO2 should also be considered in, in the future. As far as the replacement of fossil fuels here, uh, there is a considerable room for maneuver for biomass as far as the feedstock uh, of high temperature phases of the industry are concerned. And as far as the production of steam, which is at lower temperatures, then uh, other processes in the industry, even solar, can provide a great contribution to the decarbonization. To conclude, an important element for decarbonization of the industry is clustering. So to put together different industries and allow them to interact and find together the best option to decarbonization. And here, again, the coordination at the local level is crucial. So, <coughs> Why uh, do I present you this uh, sort of summary of the decarbonization pathways that we have in the table? Because our challenge is to extrapolate the key policy lines of the future and the key policy challenges that Europe will need to face with this regard. And from our perspective, two, having said all what we said, are the two policy challenges ahead for Europe in decarbonization. First is to deal with an increasing interaction of sectors. Sectors that in the past used to be considered as separate, electricity, ICT, heating and cooling, transportation and the industries, all these will come closer and closer due to decarbonization, but also and particularly due to the digitalization of the system, because all this environment is uh, favored by ICT technologies that are allowing the, uh, the linkages between the various players that before were not, of course, possible. So the first policy challenge that uh, Europe will need to face is this intersectorial interconnection. The second one is the need to find new and more efficient <coughs> way to let the EU level, the national level, and the local levels coordinate on decarbonization. As we saw, several decarbonization options are only exploitable at local level, and this is clearly the sign that there should be more role for the local authorities to act and as an enable to, uh, to decarbonization. As far as the first policy challenge is concerned, from our point of view, it's clear that the EU market design will need to be substantially revised in, uh, in the future. Just provide, uh, let me provide you some examples. Uh, today, we are, uh, it's very clear from the debate we have in Brussels, for instance, uh, shorter term products or capacity products, capacity mechanisms are becoming more and more uh, important in many industries. Look at gas, for instance. Uh, these are not harmonized so as we know from the competition side, and are creating much distortions in the market. This is clearly an area on which the EU regulation will need to do more in, uh, in the future. 
of course, new market uh, design will need to uh, define the best interfaces for trading and uh, to allow the information to take place. And this will certainly be very controversial because we have a continuum between <coughs> centralization and decentralization that with respect with you know where you displace yourself in this continuum will favor the incumbents or the new companies operating in the sector. Again, competition, but also regulation and fiscal policies will also need to modernize. Because with this increasing interconnection of sectors and with these vertical uh, interconnection between the three levels of governance, all these three areas will need to to change. So in case of uh, fiscal policy, the question is how to tax more uh, substantially negative externalities. In terms of regulation, the classical example is should I provide incentives to invest into batteries or to charge <coughs> stations? As far as the competition policy is concerned, as we just saw, the uh, complex definition of the relevant market for electricity, for instance, in a house is uh, an important element as well. But the most challenging of all these elements are probably the one of managing the increasing growth of cities. Cities, we know, are where 75% uh, of Europeans live. Uh, and here I would really like to, uh, to, to stress the idea that uh, Europe probably has not done um, sufficiently well on involving cities in decarbonization. We certainly have developed over the last years in a very positive manner, for example, the Covenant of Mayor initiative, which should continue and should be reinforced in the future. But as you know, all these actions of uh, you know, city level are voluntary based. And what we might think to do in the future is to render these sustainable action plans of local and regional authorities mandatory in order to really provide push from the bottom to think about uh, the exploitation of the synergies that we saw before for decarbonization. There is a critical incentive to, to this at local level, which is political. Decarbonization actions at local level are not just actions of climate change mitigations that might seem to be something very abstract and far away to citizens but are actions to enhance the local environment. The two things are factually the two sides of the same coin. So if a local uh, politician, a mayor, promotes strong decarbonization policies in his city, these are perceived, first of all, by the citizens as actions to increase the quality of the local environment and ultimately to increase the quality of the life of the citizens living in this reality. And I think that these are an incredible political uh, incentive to act on decarbonization at the local level. Of course, high are the transaction costs from the coordination of the parties at this level. And for this reason, the national and the EU setting of regulatory frameworks, benchmarks, and targets, and mechanisms to enable and favor this uh, bottom-up uh, approach to tackle, to take place, uh, are extremely important. So if we want to, uh, to, to allow this process to go ahead, 
competences should be given, probably more competences should be given to, to cities, and probably, con consequently, even fiscal space, more fiscal space should be uh, considered to be devoted to that. Just to provide you an example, one of the cities that in Europe are is probably the most advanced in terms of uh, climate uh, change mitigation and decarbonization efforts is Copenhagen. This is, of course, due to the fact that there is a deep culture uh, over there about these environment issues. But it's also true that uh, Copenhagen started to develop seriously its uh, uh, climate plans after uh, the reform of the public, uh, the public administration that uh, gave more power to the city council to act on environment and climate and energy related issues. So in the case of Copenhagen, the decentralization of competences from the national level was key to enable this action and to obtain the results that all of us can see while traveling to that city. One final point. Uh, there is, of course, the risk of in, uh, facing a political obstacle, which is the one of national states uh, not really <coughs> being willing to provide more competences to regions or uh, municipalities in these areas. But it should be clear in the table that smarter cities can really create a series of important positive spillovers for the overall national and European levels. Think about security of supply. Security, uh, of, uh, the, oh, security of energy supply can be enhanced if cities are themselves becoming more resilient. Think about the development of national electricity grids. All the challenges that we face with integrate, to integrate renewables by having more flexibility at local level, this can be helped. Think about the impact that reduced air pollution can have in terms of healthcare. So there are several uh, sectors on which there is really the, a clear positive spillover and should here also be outlined that uh, switching also a little bit the narrative to the local level is important in the overall European quest for growth and jobs. Because the more you invest in the local level, the more you stimulate small and medium enterprises. Because the companies that are going to factually do the works needed to interconnect, to uh, create a district, uh, district heating system and so on and so forth are not going to be the multinationals, but are going to be the local small and medium enterprises. So this is also to be inserted in the wider framework uh, of uh, the, European, uh, the European economic policies. So these are is what I wanted to, to provide as a kickoff for our discussion. So I will give back the floor to the discussants. Thank you. I think there's a lot of questions there and uh, a, a big outline of some of the shifts that we're going to see. Um, of course, the commission is um, on coming up with its uh, redesign of the electricity markets, the renewable directive, the energy efficiency um, package in just a few weeks, almost now. Um, there's uh, the commission has spoken a lot about how consumers should be at the center of that. Um, there's a lot of new actors on the market, so winners and losers expected from some of the regulatory changes. Um, so, 
if you could speak, you know, we'll give 10 minutes, I think, to everybody um, about some of these challenges and how are you going to deal with the mushrooming of capacity markets or incentives for technologies and different changes um, in the sectors? And all that in 10 minutes? Yes. Oh, that's, uh, that's easy. I'll give you a bit of a summary of the legislation so you don't need to read it. No, I'm kidding. Of course, uh, as you all understand, I cannot uh, really anticipate yet what will be in it in particular in terms of the details because that's being discussed as we speak and uh, that's one of the reasons why Mary can't be here. So apologies uh, on her behalf and you have to do with me. I hope I uh, can, uh, can replace her uh, as you would expect. Um, anyway, so yes, uh, big legislation coming up. Um, 30th November is the timing at the moment and that seems to be relatively stable. We had some shifts as you may know. Uh, so I cannot give the details, but I will uh, basically want to present two things to you. One is how the Juncker Commission goes about this, uh, this work, and, and maybe a bit more general how they work. And uh, then a few uh, topics that I want to highlight um, that I think are particularly relevant uh, for today. Um, so first of all, um, you know, since the Juncker Commission, we don't work in silos anymore. We have vice presidents who coordinate. Um, and uh, we see that that leads to a much better linking of uh, different things. Uh, the, uh, we have Juncker with his 10 priorities, and um, we have the, the, the vice presidents that are really responsible for delivering them and not just sticking to, for example, energy as a, as a topic that they need to address. <laughs> uh, there are uh, lots of uh, project team meetings taking place, as they are called, which is uh, groups of commissioners that uh, have something to say and that have some uh, relevance for the policy field. So when we talk about uh, now the, the energy market legislation and the energy union, we're, uh, of course, very much linking that, let's say, the basis for action in some, to some extent is um, uh, the commitment of the EU in, uh, in, in Paris on the COP21. But uh, we know that, you know, we, just, we, don't, we cannot just talk about uh, climate change, we need to talk about jobs and growth because that's really the big challenge in Europe at the moment. So we need to link with that agenda as well. So we need to talk about innovation, about new job opportunities for, uh, for, uh, for people and we need to think about what the effects are of our policies on the, on the European uh, markets. And it's also about access to capital. Uh, how are you able to invest So the capital, capital markets union is uh, very important. And, um, of course, it needs to be linked with investment, uh, not just at uh, a local level or the national funds, but we have the regional funds, we have the, uh, the funds for strategic investments that are going to be doubled, and uh, it's clear that uh, those instruments, we need to use them to uh, bring forward our uh, energy agenda. I think, you know, if you want to call it uh, the energy transition. You know, that's really what we're talking about. We're really talking about changing the energy system in Europe. And that requires, uh, uh, you know, thinking beyond just the energy sector. It also requires thinking in terms of actors and many of the instruments like uh, the regional funds, for example, they are there for member states to spend, but they are acting at the local regional authority. So the, we need to much better align also their capabilities to absorb that money to be able to spend it and to spend it on good projects and not just on uh, highways or, uh, let's say, touristic trains. 
I read an article about that the other day, um, <coughs> where somebody complained in Hungary about how all the structural funds were used for uh, uh, beefing up some kind of uh, tourist attraction, and they were saying, we, we, we can think of much better things to spend it. So I would think energy is one of them, and I think uh, we need to also spend more time on linking our policies with those instruments. Um, now, so that's you know, how we work. It's an integrated approach. It's not, we're not just talking about energy. You can, you can expect the other things also to be very closely linked with it. Um, now, on, uh, on the transition itself and on what we're proposing, I just want to highlight a few things. Um, first of all, uh, you t talked about heating and cooling. I think we fully agree that's something that we need to spend a lot of uh, attention on. Of course, the, the, the core of the package, the market design, is about integrating renewables into the electricity market uh, and how you need to adapt the rules for, uh, for renewables to be able to have a level playing field. Adapt the market to renewables and adapt renewables to the market. Uh, but much of that is about creating flexibility. And I think if you talk about the, uh, the integration across the sectors, one of the key aspects is flexibility. If uh, we, we see the need to deal with much more renewables in the grid, that means that we have to have a lot more flexibility in how that is being used. So demand response, uh, ability to trade, uh, optimize across borders, but also uh, the interaction with other sectors. Um, and that can be local uh, or regional or even um, at a national or European level. But it, uh, for example, the link between electricity and heating is quite straightforward in the sense that uh, if, you house, if you heat your house with electricity, your house is basically a storage. You don't want it to go from, let's say, you don't matter if it's 15 degrees at 5 before 7 and then 21 at 5 past 7, depending on what time you get up. But, uh, but it, it, it is a buffer, it's a storage. So a very obvious uh, link there is, uh, is the, the link between electricity and storage. Use a lot, there are a lot of technical technology possibilities that we can still use uh, to optimize that, uh, that storage capacity that is kind of already in the system now, if we speak about the energy system as a whole, but it means creating better links uh, between different sectors, but, and it starts with um, giving a clearer value to flexibility. Uh, and I think that's one of the, uh, one of the core aspects of the, um, of the uh, proposals that will come um, uh, in terms of making it easier for, um, let's say, assets connected to the grid, I think the grid edge is what it's uh, sometimes called, to be able to participate in the electricity market. Um, if you talk about the current situation, uh, it's designed for big power plants. Uh, so if you have a balancing problem, the TSO calls a power station and they say, you know, please give me another 10 megawatts. In the future, also with the digitization, uh, we should be able to say a TSO needs 10 megawatts, I put out an order, and uh, let's say 1,000 households, or 10,000, uh, reply to it. Uh, maybe not all individually. I think that still depends on the cost of data and data processing, which is also going down rapidly, but uh, through aggregators that make this into a service. So the, uh, the ability to, uh, to use uh, these, um, all this flexibility that is connected to the grid depend on the rules uh, around how the uh, network is operated. But if you do that, if you reach out to all these small things, then you can use the flexibility 
that a house has as a heating storage. Uh, you can use uh, transport, maybe in ele electric cars or uh, fuels produced from uh, hydrogen. You know, who knows what the innovation will bring? Um, but it, it's, uh, I think it's in that dimension that we need to look for the integration and where we need to uh, also give a role to uh, the citizens and the local level. Uh, the, the, the cities can be a facilitator, they are sometimes an, an investor, they are sometimes a, uh, you know, uh, uh, bringing people together, uh, but uh, in the end it has to be consumers and citizens that do the core of the investments and that are willing to pay for hopefully better services but that uh, those services also contribute to integrating renewables into the system, uh, not just in electricity, but also in, in heating and cooling. And I think if we talk about uh, heating and cooling in particular, uh, of course we need to uh, focus on the demand, so we need to accelerate uh, renovation. That's nothing new, I think we've been talking about that for, uh, let's say, at least 10 years. But um, we're, we're seeing real progress now where people start to think, you know, we cannot go house by house in a, in a sense of, you know, test a little bit, do it again. and do it. We need to industrialize this. We need to speed up the process. We're doing 1% renovation per year. That's really not enough. So we need to look at ways how, how we can industrialize this, how we can increase the scale. And that, of course, has big impact on how the construction sector works because that is a kind of a tailor-made business. And, of course, we can't forget that when we talk about people's homes, it becomes a very personal issue. So the, industrializing it, uh, doesn't mean that uh, you know the consumers don't have anything to say anymore, but it's about uh, you know if you renovate their house and they are rental houses, maybe you give them a new kitchen as well. It has nothing to do with energy, but it makes the it makes the project uh, more interesting and and probably for the house owners it pays off anyway. So that's one thing. And secondly, uh, when we're talking about uh, <coughs> heating, we we have to uh, uh, tackle two drawbacks. Which one is the uh, technology lock-in? So we have 80% is fossil, 80% of the heating is fossil fuel based, and we need to uh, uh, we need to get away from that uh, kind of that that customers are locked in to that technology and that use of fossil fuels. And you can of course do that by looking at the fuels, and you can do that by looking at the um, uh, at the way they uh, produce the electricity. I was in a conference this morning, uh, more or less coming straight from there to here when I heard that I had to replace Mary. But uh, that was uh, one organized by Eurogas. And of course, that's, uh, uh, you know, traditionally, th they are uh, saying we need to continue to use gas. This Today, this morning, uh, it was much more about how can we actually innovate, how can we use the expertise that we have as companies to, uh, to play a role in the energy transition. And I was on a panel with a lady who is produ uh, producing <coughs> heating solutions. Originally, they were doing boilers, and they were saying, in Germany, we really see the market for our product uh, decreasing drastically. People are insulating their houses better, and they're putting solar panels on the roof. Uh, am I over time? Well, I mean, you're, but you're segueing into industry, so maybe <laughs> we'll... <laughs> I, I'll, uh, I'll gradually <laughs> transit. Um, I'm about to close. So, the, uh, so she, they were saying, as a company, we're going to look into offering other products to the people that, you know, that know us and that know us as a company because we see that a boiler is not really the, the thing they need anymore for heating. And I think those, that, that's, uh, that's, of course, a very, uh, uh, let's say it was a quite a tough message, I guess, for the people in the room there. But, uh, but it shows that uh, th this, if, if you can get people out of the kind of technology <coughs> lock-in 
then uh, uh, you can have a lot of innovation. And so on the one hand, it's you know, consumers who can decide on their own how they use their heating, but not every, every citizen is as rich as the average German citizen. Uh, there is also a, an issue about the fuels that we use, for example, in district heating. And I think one of the things we want to address also in the coming packets is how can we uh, trigger district heating companies to use more renewables, or how can we give consumers more freedom to say what they, how they want to ha have their house heated if they're linked to a district heating system. Um, I uh, already addressed a little bit the digitization, so I think this is going to make you even happier, hopefully. Uh, but of course, the, uh, the, the, the good news is that this decentralization, you know, it's a kind of uh, interaction. It's only made possible because we have such a progress in ICT. But we need, of course, also ICT rules to, uh, and, and, and regulations and the system to follow suit and to promote what is happening in the energy system. And if we talk to our colleagues from, uh, from DigiConnect, they, uh, you know, they have lots of solutions <coughs> kind of already available. But uh, in, in the energy system, they're not common ground and they're not used. And one of the key aspects there in particular, if you talk about enabling all these houses or whatever is connected to the grid to participate in the energy system, it needs to be, you, know, you need to have easy access to that. You need to be able to control it very easily. And that means that, uh, let's, say, uh, the, the, let's say, the entrance barriers to that market have to be low. So we need interoperability and, uh, and standardization of those communication channels as well. And I, I think that we don't need that just for energy, because from a consumer point of view, apart from a few freaks like the ones in this room, maybe, uh, many people will, will not, their first uh, point on the agenda when they have a bit of money to spend will not be to be a smart home just for energy. They want something that is comfortable. So they may even think of a kitchen first, but it may be security, it may be uh, your top-up boxes and internet connection and I don't know what. So we, in interoperability and in access to the house and the data that you need to be able to contribute to the electricity system, uh, the aggregators that need to come into this market, you, we need to look at interoperability from the smart home point of view. So on that note, so that's something that's not really, you know, that's not our core issue, but that's where project teams and the common approach of the commission comes in, and we're discussing this a lot with our colleagues uh, in Connect and, uh, and looking into ways how to promote this. So with, on that note. Well, indeed. <laughs> so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how, yeah, sorry. Oh, you don't need the mic. Um, um, about your diversification in the industry and, and how, the, how the, the roles are changing in terms of services. Okay, thank you very much. Hope the mic is working. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. So I was asked, I mean, to not display too much slides. So I just selected one. A uh, few, few words to start about Schneider Electric. You can see on the, on the, 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 the down, I mean, right, of the slide, life is on. What are we doing? I mean, well, we want to make sure that life is on for everyone, everywhere, and at any time, in a safe, reliable, efficient, sustainable, and connected way. Uh, just, just, I mean, well, this is the role of our 160,000 people over the world. Uh, they have been, uh, we've been generating 26 billion uh, revenue uh, last year. And, uh, well, our activity is quite balanced in terms of geography. 26% in Europe, 29% in Asia, 
27% in North America and the rest, which is around 18% in the rest of the world. So a balanced uh, activity which allows us, for instance, to benchmark, compare, and select where we will put our investments. That is something we can touch later on. Uh, a balanced activity as well in terms of end markets, because we are active in buildings, in infrastructure, in industry, and even in IT in data centers. Well, as far as the energy transition is concerned, we have a very simple formula, which I will try, I mean, to cascade with you, 3D plus E. And the 3D, I'll start with decarbonization, because definitely decarbonization, and we've been I mean, discussing a lot, I mean, is key. What I want, I mean, to remind is that the bulk of CO2 emission reduction will come from energy efficiency and renewable energy at par. The diagram you're having here is from the International Energy Agency, and I think that this is really something we need to keep in mind, and that energy efficiency first is something we shall not forget. Well, as far as decarbonization is concerned, good news, Paris Agreement will come into force in a few days from now, and, and that is really a success. One year from Paris, that is eight times faster than it was for Kyoto. And I think this is a sign about, I would say, mobilization of governments. However, you know that this two degree or less than two degree possibly, which means not more than 450 ppm of CO2, Last year, we reached already 400 ppm. That was measured in several places in the world. Which means that by 3, 4 ppm per year, if we're still going like that, it would be hard. So, I mean, really, we, we, we have, I mean, targets. In EU, the 40% by 2030 was just, I mean, reminded. But I think that when we see what is the situation, we cannot discount our ambition. We should even push it up. And we cannot hesitate in our policies. We have no time. I think policy hesitation, flip-flap regulations, that for sure would make Europe losing the first mover advantage. And I was telling you that we are active, I mean, in Asia, we are active in Europe, we are active in US. I can tell you that six years ago, when I was going in China, people were really, I mean, asking a lot of questions, were impressed by our framework, the 320. Believe me, that's not so much the case right now. And I think, I mean, we need in Europe, really, to think about that. The second D, decentralization. Well, I would say that if you look at the 2030 target in terms of renewable, at least 27%, and that is for renewable energy, translated into electricity, that means 50% renewable energy. This means that in less than 15 years, we will have to manage coexistence of a centralized systems which will remain for half 
and a renewable system for the other half. Take into consideration that today, 90% even more than the renewable electricity is generated from sources connected to the distribution electric network. That is, I mean, and that will go on. I think, I mean, it's, it's really key to think that the pathway, the roadmap we are in, will need, in fact, to have more or less, I would say, half of the renewable, which we will connect, completely decentralized. That is a real shift we have to make. Together, with local generation, storage is coming. I mean, local generation is a reality. We're seeing, I mean, the prices which are going down really very significantly. Believe me, think about the investments which are made right now in storage. Things will happen. And I think, that, I mean, that for me, I mean, in the transition, in, in fortunately, electric, the vision is quite clear. We have a change in paradigm to make. First of all, at demand. And the demand transition is probably the number one challenge. And this demand transition in terms of decentralization means, in fact, the energy user has to be transformed in a, a prosumer, which means, in fact, that energy efficiency is the base, and we should not forget it. Then we need to develop the local distributed generation. Then we will have storage. Then electric vehicle is climbing up. And in fact, this prosumer is becoming really an energy resource and not just an energy I mean, uh, demand. And, and flexibility of this new prosumer will be a critical issue in terms of success of this new electric system. Uh, we were discussing about uh, cities, about local. I'm just thinking here about districts. I believe that we have definitely we're citizens, but we as well, by the way, businesses, because we need jobs, we need growth. I mean, we've got industry, and we really need industry in Europe. The, 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 the consumer, I mean, the energy user, uh, we have to think it possibly, and my, my previous, I mean, uh, uh, the previous speaker just mentioned aggregation. I think aggregation is something really another key of success of the decentralization. And when we mean aggregation, it's not just aggregation of, you know, uh, uh, consumers, I mean, uh, uh, residential users. If you can aggregate, Consumers which have different patterns of usage, you can get far more flexibility immediately. And I think that we think that really this decentralization, districts, communities, cities have a key role to play. Paradigm shift, there is a second one, uh, which has as well a significant, a significant size, and that is the distribution grid. The distribution grid the medium voltage electrical grid will not at all be planned, operated, maintained in the same way as it is today. That is a tremendous change. We will get energy flow both sides. We will get data flows as well. That is really something new which needs investments. 
And I mean, when we're speaking about smart and flexible distribution grid, that is what is behind. And in here, I would say the good news is that revenues from distribution system operators, they are regulated. So definitely, I mean, we have a possibility to act and incentivize the uh, investments which are necessary and which are completely different from the previous ones. You know, distribution system operators in Europe are very much remunerated on the capital they invested. The, 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 what they have to invest for smart uh, uh, and flexible distribution is not at all the same type of capital, not at all the same duration. The depreciation rules are not at all the same. And this is something which we need to take into account in the, in the regulations. I think that you've seen, I mean, what's behind this decentralization and, and really regulations, policies, I mean, can either incentivize, accelerate, or hamper, limit this move. And these are, I think, what is at stake because the so-called market design or market redesign. Yeah, digitization, ah, it's quite important, so very, very, I'll be quick there with digitization, I would say, what does this mean? It was interesting to say IT, and you, you spoke about DigiConnect. I think, I mean, that we have to think digitization in terms of more sensors, in terms of more monitoring, more automation and control, more data handling, and more data processing. The point is, when we are, I mean, in the energy world, we are with what I would call operational technology. I think that a lot of people with ICT are thinking about information technology. And the challenge there is to have, I mean, information technology and operational technology merging. And that is, I think, the, the, the challenge. I would say in here, we need really trust. And we know that behind digitization, there are a lot of questions. So data privacy, cybersecurity, making sure that these issues are taken into account consistently. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's what I wanted to say on digitization very quickly. Uh, I said 3D and E, and I'll be short there. I mean, E, electrification. You mentioned, I mean, that it's key, I mean, that we increase the electrification because electricity at the end is the, 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 the one, I mean, not producing CO2 at end use, and it's more and more produced from low CO2 sources. Uh, well, I, I just want to conclude by saying that, well, it's, it's urgent, we have no time. That's what I was saying. We need really uh, to raise up the ambition and not to hesitate in implementation of mandated measures. I think that's a very good point to kind of shift over and ask, um, you know, will technology keep up? Will, um, will national implementation of uh, the climate pledges and the fast ratification <coughs> that we've seen of the Paris Agreement um, go forward? If you it's an invitation to, uh, <laughs> to, to please <laughs> tell us more. About this. Um, well. First of all, I thought uh, Simone did, did a great presentation, beautifully clear, and uh, it's a great platform for some remarks on the challenges and added thoughts. Um, I just want to make remarks on three, uh, but admittedly big, broad areas, 
Um, the, and I have one slide for each of the three, so I've not done quite as well as uh, from industry, but um, I've drawn these three, incidentally, from a, a slightly longer presentation people could look at if they wish. So the first area I want to touch on is the three Ds, uh, as already called. The second is market structures. I think I've got... Uh, okay, fine, grand. Um, second is market structures, and third is the broader political governance issues. Um, just in, in that first of the area, the three Ds, um, it may be surprising since I do have climate change in my job title, but I don't actually think decarbonisation is the driver at a high political level. I think it is for many of us in the technocratic community, but I think that the public discourse is and should and will remain around effectively the trilemma, you know, a clean energy system, one that is also affordable and competitive and secure. Um, in that sense, I think the role of decarbonisation is not exactly as a sort of governing constraint thou shalt meet, but is more of an impetus to innovation and transformation. And that's what I think has come through really clearly uh, from, in fact, all of, all of the remarks. And in that sense, is, is a very positive agenda. Um, on decentralisation, um, I think, again, a slight caution about some of the interpretation. If it says, oh, great, decentralisation of energy generation, I think that is potentially true for rural areas, but not for cities. I mean, physically, cities cannot really generate enough energy themselves um, to supply their own needs. They will always be dependent on energy imports from somewhere of some sort, but cities are potentially a major node of energy conversion and services back to the energy system. So just consider one statistic, which is there are worries in the UK and some other countries about peak electricity demand. Do we have enough capacity to generate? Not many people realise that peak heat demand is six times as big as peak electricity demand. So a very small fraction of converting heat to electricity or the flexibility between them will solve our electricity problems, capacity problems overnight. And cities could be absolutely central in that. Similarly, I think transport um, is potentially a sector that when integrated involves just as much electricity capacity or rather story, storage capacity in a form either fuel tanks or batteries, to match the electricity system. So it is absolutely the integration of these sectors and um, the potentials there. With this, I'll actually also touch on uh, one, the, the first of these slides. Sort of on the left is a chart I actually picked up from China, which was uh, kind of interesting, where they are motoring full scale about all these decentralised networks, etc. And I think that a useful term is a sort of distributed service providers of various sorts for regulating capacity peak, da da da. But for the reason I flagged, I think one does need to recognise there is also the big picture generation question. And I think in a decarbonising system uh, and a more renewables-oriented system, one has to say, what are the big renewable sources that match? In southern Europe, it's a lot of solar. In northern Europe, roughly wind energy matches the seasonal profile very well and significant amounts of the resource, a vast resource, for example, is off, uh, offshore. And that is not, not exactly small, cuddly and decentralised, but it is very different 
And it is very international. It's very pan-European. And indeed, renewables have this, I think, implication that what you're doing is broadening the energy system or maybe hollowing it out. You get more local, but also more transnational to make the best of the resources. Fine, what does that imply? Um, I think, uh, Simone, sort of, there was a sort of hint that maybe, maybe this agenda will replace networks, and I don't think it does. I think what it does is the network becomes a carrier of digitalized energy services, which is a very different kind of economic role for the networks. Um, okay, second area, um, which I might call sort of beyond the electrons market. Um, we've had you know, two decades of trying to liberalize the European energy system and particularly electricity, um, driven by this idea that we can create a spot market in electrons and that should solve all our problems. Now, this is a slightly odd kind of slide. Um, I, don't, I won't go through it in much depth. It was, should we say, floating the thought. It was actually in response to a question from the, the UK government uh, chief economist on energy. He said, crikey, Britain's got really involved, the state governments, really involved in the energy system. How do we get out of it? We would like to actually not have government so involved. And my reaction on a lot of thinking was, well, you can only get out of that not by pretending that governments can get out of the electrons market, but by designing a series of different markets which suit the different needs of the system. And they are kind of flagged here. So at the top left, you've got the distributed services providers market, which is all the cities, smart digitals, balancing services, etc. You may have a capacity market. Um, complicated debate, no time for that. But the point is that there could potentially be quite a healthy competition between those two things. I think we still need the spot market, but we certainly need some structure to support long-term capital-intensive investment of the sort of renewable, whether it's renewables or nuclear. And they, you clearly, I think many now think you can't deliver that just through a, a short spot market. So there's at least four different markets. And I think the key is, can you actually design a series of systems that make these things work together in very effective ways with the kind of government being a slightly lighter touch governance of the relationships of those systems. And it may be that the language of markets is not quite right, but certainly bringing competitive forces into all of those processes, I think, is very valuable. The third area, um, third and final, is actually suggesting, and I may be carrying some political scars on my back, that Actually, to really make success of this, we need to raise it beyond a purely energy internal technical discussion. Uh, I'm going to put a slide up. Apologies, some of you may have seen it. Again, it's a bit of an odd one. Um, some in Bruegel may recall Bruegel kindly hosted about two years ago for me to come and launch quite a major book here. And this is one of the sort of iconic slides. What it says really is there is obviously a role for markets, particularly where you are dealing with you know, analytic actors who are calculating and optimizing their behavior. Um, and broadly then you need carbon prices or such things to kind of make them choose cleaner products and processes. But that does not describe the entire economic or energy system. You have a big role for lots of other frequently more local, smaller scale stuff where actors are really behaving in a more sort of behavioral economics type way, lots of, what, 
economists would classically call market imperfections or behavioral anomalies, etc. There you need different instruments. You need standards, you need engagement, you need to say, do you realize the opportunities that you could have that you're not thinking about? You need to create the new structures that create that kind of engagement. And you may note the sort of visual alignment a little bit from this slide and the previous one, actually, which is it's no accident that I laid the squares out that way because the top two there are sort of how do we engage the markets between distributed service providers and the, the wider energy markets. And then at the other, effectively, you're trying to get smarter choices out of the system given what digitization has created as possible. And then the other area you have to think about is the transformation of the systems, which require some pretty long-run, far-sighted capital investment, much of which will yield public goods, which are bigger than any individual company can get. So there's a public policy, public-led investment role. And it's kind of here I'll just make my, my final uh, remark, um, which takes it right up to a political level, if you don't mind. But... Um, there is, uh, I'm going to be a little sarcastic here, there's a sense in which the UK has seen itself as a leader and helped to push through the energy market liberalisation. And uh, on 23rd of June, we had a certain event in the UK, which you know, I fear could say the UK is um, in danger of leading again um, in what some have now called the plebiscide, which is basically economic suicide by popular vote. <laughs> and... I get the sense that much of the EU elite have not yet taken this seriously enough. And maybe I'm wrong. But to me, when I see what happened in the UK and why it happened, it's like, well, I hope the EU is really, really, really taking notice. And, and where, do, where does this problem come from? And I do speak as someone where I kind of feel identity of sort of British European, um, endangered species possibly. Um, I think it actually comes partly from the fact that we started with the European coal and steel community and strategic investment and a social and political endeavour. And then in the 1980s, we kind of turned it into, well, let's have the single market and that solves the problems. And that's what the European project became. Well, the problem is, in my view, that single markets are great at aggregate economic efficiency in the neoclassical sense but they have lots of distributional consequences. And it is the distributional consequences that actually people individually see as voters. And what they see is, well, Europe sort of driving all of this freedom of movement of people who are coming and taking away our jobs. And it's the national government which does either the social or the strategic kind of investments. So answer, Europe becomes responsible for all the unpopular stuff Nation-states retain responsibility for the popular stuff. Where does that lead politically? Yeah? To my mind, therefore, the issue in energy transformation is, is this big enough and important enough and strategic enough that we can say, this is not a technocratic discussion, that the transformation of the European energy system is part of a renewed strategy that, yes, will involve, as Simon said, certain elements of fiscal capacity, maybe new governance structures involving trans-European cities, etc. But I think this needs to be seen as a big deal, not as a technocratic exercise in how to decarbonise the energy system. 
on that note, I'm, I'm glad that we brought it back to the big politics and, and the voters, and essentially the people who are paying their utility bills <coughs> and, their, and, and who are affected by, by what we're discussing at the end of the day here. Um, so there are a lot of questions raised here. I have a lot of questions that I could ask, you know, about behavioral economics. How do you change, you know, consumer behavior and a lot of these things, and, and how are people really thinking about this? But I'd like to open the floor right away because you're all here for reasons. So if I may, yeah. Um, I think we have... Kurt oh. Geisel, Association of German SMEs. A lot of you mentioned uh, the importance of the local level for the questions uh, we speak about. And you, uh, Professor Grubb, you are from London. When I am in London, I am impressed by the big amount of ride buses, hybrid buses, <laughs> in London. Uh, I was told they, they, uh, they are made in north of Ireland. Uh, is it uh, something which is only for London, or is it something which spreads over the whole uh, United Kingdom, these hybrid buses uh, in city uh, traffic? Thank you. If you want to take yeah. it, I, I don't know. In short, it's driven partly by the level of, if you like, local air pollution concern and the long tradition and discourse in the London community about decarbonisation, cleaning up the system, as well as innovation. But I mean, I think London's not the only um, city that's got uh, hybrid buses by any means. I don't know, do you have something to add about cities and, and, and their grids, Simone? Or? No, that is also a question there. Yeah. Okay, well, take your question. Yes, Hi, I'm Sadiq Kumar, the Friend of Change Partnership. Uh, another fellow Brit is a European. Uh, we're very, very disappointed about the, the, the election results the other day. I think what you said, Michael, is absolutely spot on. Um, uh, climate change and decarbonisation are not about technology. They're about people and how people respond to stimulus. Now, as a historian, we have loads and loads of examples of communities organising themselves to block change happening. What we really need to do is just to focus on those barriers and how we start to unpick those barriers. Uh, now, we've been doing a lot of work taking the trade union concept of a just transition and really trying to see how do we work that into a European framework. And actually, uh, our answer is threefold. The first one is, is that, as Michael said, the governance structure that we have at the moment is completely inadequate to, to, to deal with the scale and the complexity of the challenges that are, that, that are required. The second one is um, there seems to be a lack of ownership. The notion is, is that decarbonisation is going to be some form of digitalisation, some form of new clean low technology that comes on board. Um, and that's going to be able to win all of the politics along the way. Well, that doesn't seem to happen all the time. The third problem is, is the, and this is the question that I would like to ask you, is the response from the incumbents who lose out. So what, we, what we're witnessing at the moment is the fossil fuel industry actually fighting back quite aggressively. Um, you know, we're, we're spending more money through capacity mechanisms subsidising German lignite than the ETS has actually uh, had an impact in terms of uh, RWE, one of the biggest polluters in Europe. So how do we, how do we start a discussion with the incumbents? How do we start to address the big... Uh, uh, resistance that the fossil fuel industry quite rightly will put up um, and what's the kind of deals that need to be made to get them to either accept this um, or for us to beat them. 
Okay, well, we don't have anybody from the oil and gas sector on the panel to, <laughs> to respond to that, but um, I wonder if you might say a few words about the, the difficulties of, of dealing with incumbents and winners and losers in these changes. Yes, <coughs> I can. I was uh, working in the internal market unit when we proposed the unbundling uh, as part of the third package, so the separation between transmission and, uh, and energy supply, and that was basically taking on the incumbents full frontal. And uh, that happened. Uh, so it's not. Uh, it's definitely not impossible. Uh, I think that what. Um, I mean, a few thoughts that come to my mind. Right. I think one of them is uh, we see the incumbents moving. And, uh, if you look at Aon, if you look at RWE, and how they are uh, completely redefining what their company does or what their companies do, that is really something that uh, we would not have thought would happen uh, five or, uh, well, ten years ago, definitely not, and probably five years ago, neither. So I think that they, they are responding. Um, and, I, you know, in Europe we talk a lot about regulatory uncertainty. Um, and some of those companies may complain about it. But I think if we talk about decarbonization, if we talk about renewables, and if we talk about energy efficiency, there is no regulatory uncertainty at all. Uh, you know, there can be nuances on specific sectors, but if we talk about uh, uh, our commitments, uh, you mentioned uh, 2050, uh, <laughs> when we set out with 2020, some thought may, you know, maybe this will pass. So we can consider it a regulatory uncertainty, but it's not. We have confirmed it with what we want to achieve for 2030 to get ourselves on track to reach what we want to achieve in 2050. So I think the giving uh, the long-term signals and backing it up with uh, let's say, shorter-term commitments. Uh, we have a 20... It started with a 2050 ambition, um, and uh, it's been backed up by rules that put that in practice for 2020 and 2030. Now, uh, what we will come with by the end of this month is uh, backing that up also with uh, uh, policies to change the way the electricity system works so that we facilitate this uh, situation where in 2030 we will have 50% from renewables, when it's not an exception anymore, but when it's the mainstream. So I think in that sense, there is no, uh, no regulatory uncertainty. And uh, that is also the way to make a shift, even of incumbents of our traditional industries. It's uh, having a long-term goal and backing it up with short-term policies. Okay. We had another question on the front, but I don't know if you want to add... Um uh, yeah, yeah I could do. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question as to say what are the historical <coughs> analogies. Fossil fuels are such a huge part of modern society. And I know some people actually try, it back, try and trace it back and say the only analogy in history we've really got is the abolition of slavery. And you say, well, how was that done? And the answer was, well, the strategies were either compensation, which was largely the approach, I think, followed in the UK and British Empire. Um, or you have a massive battle, and in the US that played out as the Civil War. Um, I'm sure in some areas there will be substantial compensation. There is a third strategy, because I don't think there's going to be war directly around this, uh, which is broadly sort of innovation and sectoral migration, which makes the original resource sort of redundant. And, and I think it's in there you need to disentangle a bit. I mean, the reason 
it, it's very hard to see how a coal power, how a coal mine or a coal industry can have a positive future in a decarbonised world. There's no reason in principle why RWE and E.ON shouldn't because what they're selling is electrons and the networks and the services and they gradually worked out how they can make money out of that in a decarbonised world. Fine. The really interesting question, I think, is about the, the heavy industries, the steel, the cement, where it strikes me the key is either tremendous compensation, which is what we've to a large degree done so far, or you turn them into, or they evolve into RWEs or EONs of the materials world. They no longer see themselves as steel and cement companies, they see themselves as materials providers for the services that help to build buildings and, and such like. And that's by no means impossible. And I think we started charting some of the uh, technological opportunities that you can see. Um, I'm not convinced, actually, the main opportunity is in CCS at all. I think the first place to look is materials efficiency, which I suspect would lead to much bigger savings much more cheaply and much more quickly than most of CCS. But you have to kind of change the mental map to say, actually, the materials, and you can use materials more efficiently and frequently more specialised, a bit different. You can get your, your, the, the economic margins through going that route. And I think we see Wurst... Uh, from, from Austria already consciously moving itself and rebranding to be a materials company. Um, so I, I think a bit more imaginative thought in that area and the policy instruments that go along with that. And I think that probably there are experiments and discussions going on, as you'll, you'll well know, about sort of putting a charge on materials and using some of the revenues to support this evolution of those sectors. Here at Bruegel, we are working on a publication that will be released by the end of the year or early next year on the future of the European uh, energy, the European industry overall, and a section of this will be on the future of the European energy industry. And uh, the trends that we are working on are first the switch of energy from being just a commodity to becoming increasingly a service which is a trend that is favored by digitalization may, mainly. But then also as an impact on uh, industrial policy terms, the transformation of the incumbents into <coughs> energy service companies. So as uh, we start to see this issue is that companies will transform just because they realize that the, 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 the good old times are close to an end and there is a time to reinvent the industrial model and uh, uh, the idea of offering to customers a service rather than just selling the electricity or the gas, I think it will be the cornerstone of a new industrial, industrial scheme on this. I think we had another question here in the front. I don't know if there's a mic. Sorry. Well, um, we'll take the question in the back and then, sir, we'll get to you. Sorry. Yes, I'll try to be brief. Hello, everybody. Marat Terterov from the Energy Charter Treaty Secretariat. We're a legal regime that protects investments in the energy sector internationally. And just to pick up on Professor Grubb's uh, very eloquent, I think, and very uh, convincing in many ways remarks, but just two points that you made, I'd like a little bit more clarification. And in fact, it also links into Simone's uh, last comment about the... Uh, you know, the kind of 
new industrial model or an evolving industrial model for a European energy market. But I think the opening comment you made, uh, you mentioned that decarbonization is not the driver, if I pick you up correctly. Um, if I understood you correctly, uh, what did you mean exactly by that? Uh, you know, is it not a political driver, a policy driver for uh, uh, basically the type of energy system or energy balance that we're looking for either at a European level or at a broader international level? Obviously, this is a huge debate, and uh, you mentioned yourself that fossil fuels are such a big part of the world in which we live. And, of course, people like me and in the Energy Charter, we basically think that... Uh, uh, you know, okay, the 20th century was a century of oil in many ways, but the 21st century, uh, oil is not going to disappear. Uh, you know, renewables aren't going to take over as a whole. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of diversity, I think, uh, in the energy mix. So just very interested in your comments there, bearing in mind also that I was just in Iran and I met with the vice president of the country and, uh, you know, this is one of the biggest hydrocarbon players in the world and uh, she actually told our delegation that Iran, for example, has now adopted a, a decarbonized energy strategy. <laughs> Whether they will realize that in the future, I don't know, but I mean, it, it's certainly a driver, I think, even in Iran. And of course, there is a political economy element to it. The gentleman also mentioned this uh, defensive approach from the IOCs. And just the second point, uh, uh, you mentioned the uh, single market and the distributional consequences. I was really very interested in that point. Could you elaborate on that? You mentioned that these are negative sort of consequences of the uh, single market concept. Uh, thank you. Well, if you'd like to start with a question sure. directed at you. And sure. I, I mean, uh, don't overplay my original remark. I, I was trying to say it's a driver, but politically, for the average voter in the EU, I doubt it's the driver. And if you try and present it as more important than affordability or security, then you're in deep trouble politically. So, in other words, it works as a driver, providing you can deliver the other two elements of the energy trilemma sufficiently. And in a way, they, what makes it such a fascinating technocratic challenge and technocratic driver is precisely we're all here doing that and the implication is, well, the way you do that is by transforming the energy system itself, not by just putting a huge tax on carbon and letting everybody pay more because that's kind of not the way the politics would, would work. Um, so it was simply saying the narrative, I think, is to is here, this is a transformation that will deliver all these three things, which I think most people accept as all important, all three of them. Um, my, my remark about marketization, it's really a reflection, and again, I suppose the, you know, I've, I've been in this business a long time. I have seen, uh, worked for probably 20 years on the technocratic design of carbon pricing. You know, how do you design the markets? How do you do allocation? How do you do benchmarks, etc.? And what we've seen is, you know, it's been kind of eclipsed by the politics of carbon pricing. And you look at all of the economic theory of market liberalization and the efficiencies it brings. It's all good, great theory of optimal resource allocation. And you look at actually how and why Britain voted in the referendum. You look at how has Trump got so far you look at the enormous troubles around trade agreements, and you say, 
Do you know, markets have profound distributional consequences, and that is what people see and react to first and foremost. And to say, well, in the aggregate, it should be more efficient. That's kind of not what motivates people when they get to vote. So you, you have to have an integrated strategy. And that's why I refer to this sort of, to me, these three pillars basically describe what any healthy economy needs to be able to deliver, which is the combination of markets, the strategic development. I mean, no one questions the role for state in educational infrastructure. So, so why do we have hang-ups about its role in certain other areas that require certain sorts of strategic investment? Um, and so that's the kind of point that I'm making, that actually those, those three pillars reinforce each other in a healthy economy, but markets do not dominate everything to say, well, we've got a market, so we've solved the problem. You've got a market, so you've got certain sorts of efficiency that will ha also have distributional dimensions and overall public policy needs to address those. And if you split the political responsibilities between the EU and member states in the way that I very crudely summarised, and I would admit that, then you're going to have a problem politically. That's the point I'm making. I think we have time for one last question. So I think Pierre Lacombe, Foundation for the Urban Environment. Uh, congratulations to the panel, but my question is to one person in particular, Simon. Uh, you mentioned very rightly that uh, there should be a certain decentralization to make it more efficient. Now, that means that the mayors should engage in decarbonization. That means they should conclude and induce the, pub, the people to spend less tons of energy per inhabitant per year. Is that correct? Our governance is structured today. We have uh, invested a lot on a top-down approach. Look at the ETS, so the effort to provide an economic value to carbon and creating a market for that. Look at the targets we have, 2030, the regulations. But we have somehow didn't do much on the other part, which is to engage the territorial reality. So a way, just to be proposed might be the one of uh, first. I agree. Yeah. The methodology is a problem. Yeah. Because who is in the, the electorate in capacity to know what a ton of carbon less or more means in reality? It's yeah. impossible. The, uh, capital, the, the green capital of Europe, uh, 17 cities on the line, they all had different calculation yeah. of the number of tons of carbon by, yeah. Uh, yeah. of emissions by population. Thus, my suggestion is what Jean-Jacques said, uh, yeah. is that uh, as the bulk of emissions is coming from energy, would it not be better that the mayors and the Copenhagen City Council would concentrate on how to reduce the energy bill and uh, be sure that that energy is clean enough I think that would be for the European Union a big challenge. And I give you one example. I'm from mm -hmm. Belgium. Eandis, mm -hmm. the firm which is in charge of improving the energy grid, has tried and tried and tried to find capital for that. Impossible. They finally accepted an offer by the Chinese army to invest in their grid. Incredible, isn't it? And of course, at some point, some uh, people of the university have discovered that, mm -hmm. because it was not under that name, of course. And uh, then they, they, there was a big outro, uh, uproar, uh, and the thing was uh, uh, closed. This, and Eandis now is not able to improve the grid 
because the capital in easy in easy money goes to mega mergers and things like that. How can the Commission, yeah. in that broad view that it has now, yeah. encourage the quantitative easing to be used for improving the real things, like uh, uh, the improving of the grid, rather than uh, speculative ventures? Yeah. That is my question to you and maybe to other people. Yeah. Well, my answer would be that uh, I suppose, right, that by the end of the year the Commission will come up with a new financing uh, initiative uh, for smart cities. And uh, yeah, yeah, of course, no, no, it's not the Euchre plan. It's another thing. Uh, is related to that. And I think that uh, there is uh, a way to accompany cities in making investments. Aggregation is important because uh, small cities cannot have the capability of attracting capital markets, but if you aggregate cities at the regional level, for instance, or you also work on the aggregation of regions, then institutional investors with long-term liabilities might feel more comfortable to invest also in these kind of necessary uh, infrastructure investments. But I will leave also the commission to provide. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> Do you have comments? Because we're getting to the end of our time here. But um, Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not sure what financing initiative you refer to in relation to cities. Um, we uh, think one of the issues, but this is, you know, the wider um, discussions on uh, on the budget rules and uh, um, uh, in particular within the euro, one of the issues that I think responds a little bit to your question is the fact that uh, some of the infrastructure investments are uh, whether or not they are able to be taken outside of the the budget of a state, and I think that's a that, that's that's an important issue uh, because the. Uh, I think this links also back to an academic debate, which is in, in all our budget uh, discussions, we don't take to, into account uh, sufficiently kind of the capital stock that a country has, uh, the state of its infrastructure. I think this is um, at least what I see in, in the UK uh, in, in academic debates, quite, a, quite an issue being pushed for by uh, Professor Helm. And um, uh, just on cities and what we're doing, I, I what I tried to say before with the you know, the market is changing. The the new uh, technology developments give a lot more possibilities for local actors to do something. And with the upcoming legislation, market design, renewables, and energy efficiency, we want to uh, fully uh, exploit that potential. And we want to give uh, more rights to consumers if they want to self-consume, for example. Or we want to uh, promote that they invest in, in making the building smarter so that also tenants have a kind of a minimum uh, certainty when they when they move in somewhere um, and get over this uh, this you know tenant and uh, landlord issue uh, but the uh, the kind of cities as a um, as an actor in this it can take many different forms they can be owners of uh, distribution grids and thought that they had a nice cash cow and suddenly they're supposed to put in lots of money because the whole energy system changes that is not something that we can solve with energy policy and that's a country itself that has to realize that maybe the way it sets up uh, the ownership of the distribution system is not the best way to facilitate an energy transition and um, uh, th there are other, you know, much bigger political questions in terms of auto giving autonomy to cities. I think what we uh, at definitely at a European uh, level can do is, again, set these targets, 
promote uh, that cities get involved in it, facilitate discussions. Uh, and what we try to do more and more is back it up also with concrete solutions. Uh, we have, you mentioned the covenant of mayors. A uh, lot of commitment, a lot of uh, enthusiasm for that. But then the real hard question comes, like, how are we actually going to do that? And uh, there we see, uh, with our Smart Cities initiative, we try to back it up with solutions, provide networking opportunities, exchange of best practice, etc. And we see that, you know, we can put money in it. We have Horizon 2020 funds, but if that's the only thing we do, it's like the renovation rate. If we have to pay for every building, it takes a long time. So we want to, you know, have multiplicate, mul uh, how do you call it, multipliers. And one of the things we try to do is bring the, the interested cities together with industries so that not every city has to think of its own solution, then goes to a company and a company that says, that's very nice, I have something off the shelf and you know your market is too small for me to develop it just for you. So to create the scale, um, to make the investment worth for a uh, company, but to also have the uh, ownership of the city. And what we see there is that the, the capacity of cities, in particular the smaller ones, is often not big enough to be able to, to grasp such a thing and turn it into an investment project. And so what one of the things we will do uh, much more in the future, something that we're already doing, uh, but that, that needs more, is giving this project development assistance, give this technical assistance to uh, cities and local authorities to develop um, to develop projects and to turn it into investable projects. So a kind of uh, consultancy almost, how do you take an idea into a business case? Because it seems that, that you know, there's no lack of enthusiasm and there's no lack of money. And I, but I think it's you know, the steps in between where we need to do more and that's something that we're, we're, we're going to focus on uh, in the coming year. Okay, well, I think we'll go just five minutes over if you have the patience and give a final comment to... Uh Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I just wanted to, to uh, underline I mean, the, the importance of local I mean, authorities, local cities, and I understand very much what you said. We are missing a set of simple indicators, performance indicators in terms of decarbonization, which is energy efficiency and renewable, simple indicators in terms of decentralization and in terms of digitization. I think some work has been done we should have things, simple indicators, and a set of, I don't know, it should be in one hand, not more. The, the second point, I think that aggregation is a key point and a key issue. And I strongly believe that when we were discussing about narrative, yes, as an individual, my bill. I mean, security of supply, it's for granted, unless I'm in Southeast Asia or South America. My bill. And then the climate, depending on, well, my, my children, my grandchildren, do I care or not? So, but if you aggregate, if you start to be collective, then the narrative can be different. And I think that in local aggregation is really a key concept. Well, on that note, I think we've had a very interesting debate on some of the groundswell shifts and challenges of what we've called the three Ds um, here today. Um, also, a bit of context of the significance of this change. I hope it's not going to go to conflict, as <laughs> there is a suggestion. But thank you all for coming today and engaging in the debate. Thank you.